Hello, Spacers. From Austin, Texas, I'm Christopher Schmidt. And on today's show, I'm talking with Miles Tillman and Rich Colardi that make up the leadership of Pixel Jam, an indie game development company. Since 2005, Pixel Jam has created their own video games, mostly in the retro pixelation format that defined the look and feel of the 1980s console games. They've made games such as Game of Brothers, Dino Run, and Potato Man Seeks the Truth. However, some games that they've made have other visual styles, like my favorite, the Glorkian Warrior, which shows they can shed that retro style and still make an engaging game. Pixel Jam has also produced mobile games for late-night cable station Adult Swim, such as Retro Unicorn Attack, Hipster Kickball, and Pizza City. Some notes on where I'll be. I'll be hosting the Access U Summit on May 10th. It's a virtual one-day, one-track conference about advanced web and mobile accessibility. Learn new accessible knowledge without leaving the office. Individual meeting room tickets are available at accessusummit.com. Again, that's accessusummit.com. Also, I'll be hosting the CSS DevConf, which is happening in October 17th and 18th. It's a two-day conference in San Antonio, Texas that tackles CSS, post-CSS, preprocessors, React, JS, and so much more. I registered now to pick up early bird tickets as the prices will go up later. And you don't want to miss this event. It has Jonathan Snook, Rachel Neighbors, Sarah Drasner, Wes Boss, Chris Coyer, just a great featured speakers. So check it out at csdevconf.com. As for the podcast, you can get it delivered directly into your email box with a non-breaking space show newsletter. So when the show is ready, just have it delivered directly into your email box by signing up at newsletter.nonbreakingspace.tv. You can find the show notes and links mentioned in the episode today at nonbreakingspace.tv. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at Teleject, T-E-L-E-J-E-C-T. And as always, thank you for subscribing, liking, and telling others about Nonbreaking Space Show on iTunes. Now, on with the show. We start with the show. I mean, this could be a different type of show because um, we were talking about uh, independent game development, but we start each show with just saying and asking how you guys found the web and what was your first interaction with the web. Ooh. Okay. Yeah, so uh, I don't know if you want to go, go first. Huh. First <laughs> interaction with the web. I'm going to guess mine was uh, probably as a freshman or sophomore in college. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think at that point it was uh, it was like all you know it's just like a text interface. What was that? What was that thing that everybody used to? You know what I'm talking about? It's like was it Archie or Gopher or oh, right? I think Those it was guys. either Gopher, Gopher or uh, something like that. Where or BBC or something or like a? No, I think it was Gopher. Or something. <clears throat> I was just given a text prompt and I had no idea what to type <laughs> because you know. I, it was accessing it through like a Mac and I was used yeah. to the graphical interface. I'm like, why do I have to know what to type? Is this a text adventure? <laughs> <laughs> kind of. <laughs> like find cool stuff that didn't exist at the time. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's definitely through a text prompt. That's my only memory of my <laughs> first web experience. My, mine, um, I had heard about the, I had heard about somebody on using some crazy computer chat, space i forget what it was old it was like 90 uh 
90 maybe or 89 or something like that. I heard about it. And I was like, that sounds cool. It sounds crazy complicated. I don't know anything about now, it. Now, actually, I mean, like, does this stuff, like, on the Commodore 64, I saw advertisements for, like, playing chess with someone over the phone. Does that count? Like, it was through Prodigy, I think. Prodigy was the... Uh, that was yeah. That, Prodigy was the, the bomb at the time. That That's was, what it was. Prodigy, yeah. Yeah, and I mean that was like eighty five or something, and yeah. I I didn't understand it at all, and I didn't want to play chess with somebody over the phone anyway. It was like the only thing they offered: play chess over the phone. Right. Had <laughs> <laughs> <And> one feature. <laughs> <laughs> it's like chess, whatever. Give me checkers, and then then you might yeah. have me out. I, yeah, they, I might have done that. <laughs> I don't know if that's considered the web, though. That was oh, it's the internet. Really. That was the right, internet, right. but you're talking about the web. Right. Yeah. That's, you know. so, and then I guess it was uh, Netscape was probably the first like graphical same here, yeah. web experience yeah. I had. Yeah, with, with horizontal rules. And oh, yeah. Horizontal <laughs> rules. And uh, <laughs> the blue text, the blue links, and the purple visited links. Links are still blue. <laughs> All the- and the and the spinning the spinning email me logo and logos. Oh yeah, that's little drifts. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I think they were they existed by the time I got to the web. <laughs> oh. cool. Yeah, that okay. was that was a junior in college at that point. Okay. Cool. And so, and that was last year, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I guess we should also uh, at this point. Uh, just if you guys can introduce yourself, this is so people who are listening can associate a name and with uh, and what you do with your, with your voice. Yes, yeah. uh, I am Miles Tillman, and I am uh, one half of Pixel Jam. I do the uh, coding and uh, kind of business development and music production and uh, a lot of the marketing. Right, and I'm Rich Gerlotti, uh, the other half of Pixel Jam official pixel jam we work with other folks but as far as the company itself we it's, do everything. it's just us two. <laughs> <laughs> actually it turns out close to that sometimes anyway yeah i do um art and design what else do i <laughs> no, i have ideas and that's a full-time job <laughs> <laughs> uh, promotion and um Rich makes everything pretty. Very build pretty. build things with Miles. Okay. Miles pretty much tells me what to do, and I do it. <laughs> I show him, is this good, Miles? He's like, no. <laughs> Back to work. Rich is the Rich. I'd say Rich is the main character generator behind the Pixel Jam machine. The it's Dino, like, Potato Man, uh, Gamma Bros. The Gamma Bros. Yeah, so like, so art direction and artist and. Yes. Character, creator, and designer. And then for the actual design Mm -hmm. of the games, we do them together, but it's highly iterative. We design it over the course of a long period of time instead of sitting down and deciding on everything. Before we start, but that's probably a totally different question that you didn't ask. (laughs) And we both collaborate on web web design and interface, and I usually pretty it up and then get somebody else to actually build it. I'm working on a web design today, actually. Might excite you. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, you won't, it might excite no, you. no, no, no. <laughs> it's just web. <laughs> so, no. it's not that kind of podcast. <laughs> so, all right. So, Pixel Jam. Like, when did you guys uh, describe what it is? You know, just for our audience, and mm-hmm. when you guys get first get started, and you know, what, what was the 
the history of it. So Rip's probably best qualified <clears throat> to describe the start of Pixel Jam because I was not mm. even involved in it. When it oh, actually, yeah, you were you were around for the start of Pixel Jam. Yeah, Chris. Chris, meaning Chris, not me. Chris, <laughs> I, I said take Chris at the end of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was like '98, I think. I was at uh, you know Three W Studios. Yeah. And uh, actually, I was just graduating, and I, I just was fascinated with um, zooming in in Photoshop. You know, I'd find a photo or whatever, and I'd zoom all the way in, and these glorious pixels would fill the screen, clean and beautiful. So and after then, Photoshop added their zoom feature. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, it didn't quite zoom as far as it does these days, but I was, yeah. you know, easily, you know, satisfied with that. And then uh, I wanted to see the move, and I just started doing frame by frame GIF animations of pixels moving. So yeah, I just made a pixel jam as as this idea of uh, I was jamming with pixels, abstract animations, and I did version one and launched it as Pixel Jam. I think you can still see that online. You may well you see version two. I know oh, it's like okay. pixeljam.com slash art. I think is version two, and that's like sunrises and sunsets so in pixel style with Miles doing ambient music. I must be there. <clears throat> yeah, there it, it is. There it is. It's still there. And there's uh, there's I don't know if the email what the hell that goes to. <laughs> and the stuff stuff is there's no stuff <laughs> but go go get you where you want to go but i don't think there's any going back to update this <laughs> it's just, it's but, flash, uh, so. but you know you click it and then it, it proceeds on its own i think yeah anyway um yeah pixel jam was abstract pixel art animation and then uh years a few years later i was living in chicago this is after we all lived together in orlando chris included <laughs> Full disclosure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we had that business down there. Yeah. I was like, I'm out of here. And took off to Chicago. Yeah. And, um, and then I eventually moved up to Chicago and lived with Miles. And we were doing a lot of freelance. Uh, well, I was doing a lot of freelance flash animation. Rich was doing a lot of photography. And uh, we started working right. together on some projects. And then I don't know when the exact like moment came but we realized oh flash is uh, developed enough so that you can make games in it mm -hmm. and uh, rich had just done a series of like pixel people for an art show in mm -hmm. chicago and uh, so he made some more pixel characters in a more more geared towards like, gaming and then I started teaching myself how to code, but um, not from scratch because, I, like I said, I'd done a lot of stuff on Commodore. I programmed a bunch of unfinished games on Commodore 64, so I kind of understood the logic of games, but um, I had never uh, gone as deep as I did uh, when we started. So we just kind of self-taught ourselves everything we needed to know, and a year later we released Gamma Bros, something like that. And Game of Bros is your first game? Not. It's the first game we. It's a the second game we started working on. It's the second game we shipped. Mm -hmm. It's the first big game we started working on. We stopped right in the middle and released Rat Maze, which took a couple weeks. So Rat Maze was the first game we released, <coughs> but it was not. I would say Game of Bros is like our first game because we started on it before Rat Maze. Rat Maze was like a little diversion to break up the monotony of working on Game of Bros every day for seven months or so right which i have to say was awesome it was it was yeah. really good times and i think one of the reasons why we enjoyed it so much and it's still so fond in our memories is that there was really no we didn't know about like the indie game scene we didn't mm -hmm. even know what other people were doing we knew that people were making flash games 
Um, but there weren't really a lot of Flash games out there that looked like Gamma Bros. Like, nobody had really kind of, like, intentionally embraced the super low-res pixel style. The only one was Cave Story that existed at Yeah, the time. that's right. Cave Story was out. That was... Right. But I hadn't seen that yet, actually. I don't think I had either. And then we got an email from somebody that said, Gamma Bros is like the Cave Story of space shooters. <laughs> <laughs> and I think what he might have meant by that is that Gamma Bros is the only space shooter with low-res pixel art. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Yeah, that <laughs> modern modern space shooter. Uh, yeah, like modern as, as of as far as like scope and depth goes, um, Cave Story is pretty epic, and Game of Thrones is pretty more more casual. But it's, um, it's also epic, though. It is epic. <laughs> it's way. casually casually epic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but then, uh, yeah. Can't even remember what the question was. Well, I'll, oh, no. I'll, I'll, I'll jump in. So how how it started? Um, so it was kind of like Miles said. I did these pixel models. It was actually for a fashion show in uh, in Chicago. Uh, all kinds of media. And it's like, so how how does the pixel art mix in with a fashion show? Exactly? Well, that's what I had to figure out. <laughs> <laughs> so I hadn't done any uh, character stuff yet with pixels, and I was like, well, geez, I don't know what to do. It's fashion show. Maybe I'll try to make little pixel women that have like look like fashion models we have we have really good photos of this i think it's like i know it's I've on, seen online them recently we uh, we posted them as part of our 10-year uh, anniversary online celebration right they were projected outside of an enormous kind of warehousey building yeah like big there. windows or the face oh, no, of that's this right. they were projected on the inside of the windows but you could see them from the outside right so it was pretty pretty awesome to see them so big um, so I, we, we did those and I was super satisfied with how minimal I could get, but they were still actually looked feminine. These, these little minimal three pixel wide heads and stuff. Um, and then Miles and I were hanging out one day and he, I think you were like inspired by the character, like, cause flash had come so far and you could right. start and you said something like, I could probably make that move. One of them move if with arrow keys and uh like wow it's amazing and we started thinking about making games and we did this like prototype adventure yeah clone. like an advent like atari 2600 adventure clone as as miles kind of learned the gaming chops a little bit mm -hmm. and in the meantime i worked on a, an animation cycle like a walk cycle for the character and then i gave it to miles and then he plugged it in and then we got to make the character move on the screen and then we flipped out and realized that <laughs> oh my god <laughs> we can make games we literally flipped yeah, we, all around the living room. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was pretty much, you know, That's the, the beginning. And it, it's, it was so exciting. It just kind of continued. So you're, so you're self-taught programming in Flash. Yeah. Uh, you make Rat Maze. And Rat Maze, I guess, was just like, you know, a stress reliever, if not, or a creative valve release. Uh, yeah, we, we wanted to release something. And we knew Gamma Rose wasn't going to get released anytime soon. So we <coughs> kind of ripped out the... Um, Ripped the coat out from Gamma Bros and stuck a rat in it. Okay. <laughs> right, man, make gave collision boundaries yeah, for a maze um, and put cheese in it. So, I mean, you know what? It's, it's funny, like, the attention that Rat Maze got at the time. Like, if we released Rat Maze now, <laughs> yeah. it would be like a sneeze. And it would joke, like, but, this um, is a joke. <laughs> but, you know, it like, got into, like, gaming magazines and stuff. And <laughs> it's kind of amazing that, you know, like, almost 11 years ago that that was the... That was what was possible, you know, and it's funny now when I look at all these like modern games on Steam, pixel art is like just as kind of vibrant as ever. And, you know, it gets panned a lot, but people don't really stop using it. It's kind of like mm -hmm. the, the default art style now for indie games. 
it seems. Not for all of them, of course. But yeah. if you don't have a huge uh, budget for you know art, it's you can you can go really far with it. Um, it's yeah. One of the reasons why I think it's still so popular because you can be very very expressive with it, where it's really hard to be expressive unless you've got like a million dollar budget for visuals. So you go one way or the other, you know. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, uh, you know, I've been, like, focused on the web for so long and that I take a step back and I see the gaming industry just just eating, like, even Hollywood's, like, lunch, if you will, in terms of yeah. like, how much money <laughs> it generates, right? And so, oh, yeah. and just, you know, I'm not, like, you know, like, one of the reasons why I want to talk to you guys is just get a little bit more about the gaming world was, but I feel like, you know, out of loop, you know, but I, you know, I don't play video games that much, but I enjoy them when I, when I do. And I just, like, feel like, to make a pixelated, uh, you know, art game seems like a lot of sense in terms of, like, like you're talking about Miles, it just saves so much money, but also it's also a challenge to make them, you know, vibrant, you know, make the characters vibrant and, and but still be pixelated. And so that's yeah, like, and it seems like minimalism is kind of like the, uh, I guess now you know you've got these like low poly 3D games that are like really beautiful, like that Dragon Cancer is a really good example mm -hmm. of a beautiful low low poly. Mm -hmm. I guess you know the witness. The uh, the pretty, witness isn't. Low poly. It's it's semi. It's minimal, but it's a little more low poly than high poly. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I, I own it and play it. So um, uh, there's a yeah, there's kind of like a minimal revival going on now. It seems, which is really nice. Nice to know that there's still opportunities for people out there that don't have huge. Budgets. Yeah, I wouldn't mind doing low poly stuff someday. And, and would you like what's that game for the uh, was it? iOS that the uh, the monument is that it? Is monument that what it's called? Monument value, value, yeah. That's that's not yeah. too minimalist, but it is it's kind of minimalist it's and super duper polished. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah, it's it's pretty simple and incredibly polished. Right. Um, yeah, I feel like did have a really big budget for that game. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> There's yeah. a really interesting breakdown that they posted that described how much it cost to make that and how much they made. Um, and it's it's you know they had a really big team behind it. Right? Oh really? Yeah. I, I felt like uh, I have to go read the article because I I've missed it because I felt like uh, I felt like it was a it was a small team but they spent like forever on it. Yeah, so, I, I mean it, it depends on your definition of small. So like six, six or eight. People <laughs> it was like between six yeah. and ten people. To me, that's a big team. Yeah. <laughs> oh really? Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, totally. I couldn't even imagine. <laughs> we, well, I, well, what's the scope between like uh, <coughs> value versus like the uh, the the games that you like get for Xbox or like you know the Un right. Uncharted right, you know, like right. Fallout right. Four yeah. Like, yeah. Far. yeah I mean that's yes that's exactly. exponentially it is a very small team yeah. yeah but I mean it's it's such a huge risk now to you know to make a game about yeah. anything really so yeah you got to go balls out or you know go super minimal right <laughs> cool awesome yeah so yeah so so there there is that like when we get back to like the art kind of style of, of minimalism and pixelation, which, you know, you know, which you ex you've explored like for ever since, you know, back in the day, since I first met you. So, um, is that kind of, is that your calling card you, you think in terms of the games um, that you have now? I would say it has turned out to be that way, but I have, I've, um, done non-pixel work now. Uh, our game last horizon that came out in mm -hmm. November. That was my first non-pixel game, and uh, it was actually our best, our biggest financial success. Um, maybe Dino Run might have been in the long run, maybe not. Yeah, I guess 
It depends on what you it was like a, classify financial success. Like Dynaron, at launch, I would say. Yeah, Dynaron over its lifespan has been yeah. more of a success. Mm-hmm. But as far as just like right out the gate, Last Horizon was definitely the best. Which mm-hmm. just, it feels like the biggest because, you know, it happens all at once. Right, right. But then you spend all the money before you know it's even there. And then you- <laughs> <laughs> Wonder where the next paycheck's going. <laughs> But that, yeah, I, I'm happy to do more non-pixel games, but I still love it. It's like it hasn't gone away. It's still very minimal. It's just, uh, you know, it's like, I mean, I wouldn't even call it low poly because it's not 3D, but yeah. it's minimal 2D. You know? Right, it's minimal pixels. It's not like Sega Genesis style or fancy 3D isometric pixels. Yeah, that's my style is this minimal. I actually I'm not the best illustrator, so it's more like doing puzzles at, at my level, at the level I work at often. And the next three games I'm involved with are all Pixel as well. Well, Gamma Bros updates, Dino Run updates, and uh, maybe Bionic Carl if we work on that one. Um, anyway, bunch of maybes always. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so well, I guess one of the lesson, one of the questions I want to ask is like lessons learned. And making games because I mean you you said that hey you know you want to say hey I can make your pixelated characters move and so you scan you want to code more and flash and so so you've had this learning curve mm-hmm. over you know your your you know career as as game developers you're starting from you know, not not you know from square one if you will yeah. but uh, just what lessons have you learned and about game develop, development that you wish you would have known before you started right so. <clears throat> there's the technical side of things and then there's the marketing side of things in um, the business generally. Yeah. yeah. Uh, technically, you know, it's really hard to pin down what I would have liked to know. And then, um, but as far as marketing wise, there's a lot of lessons learned. Like um, one of the, well, you know, when we started the market wasn't really that saturated. <laughs> And if you made a game that was, you know, relatively high quality, you actually had a pretty good chance of getting noticed. You didn't have to, like, spam journalists' inbox over and over again to get any sort of coverage. Now it's so incredibly saturated that you either have to get incredibly lucky or you have to pay a lot of money to kind of strong-arm your way uh, into uh, people's, like, you know, mindshare, I guess. Or you... I think the mistake that a lot of people make that are making their first game these days is that they don't start talking about their game until like it's almost ready to come out. Um, and we still do the same thing because we have our heads down in game development so much that uh, that like you know for our first twenty games or so, <laughs> we generally didn't talk about them until they were almost ready to come out. And as anybody anybody these days will tell you, that's a really big mistake. Yeah, we leave like a week for promotion before the game. <laughs> Um, or or not? Potato man, we didn't even promote yeah, until like so it, the day it launched. The uh, the lesson learned is uh, ABC always be campaigning. Uh-huh. Um, uh, even from day one, you know, right. like I've got this idea and I'm committed to make it. I'm going to tell everybody about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, here's my initial concept, and here's my progress. And you know, there are some people that are just really really good at that. Yeah, uh, Remy Remy Ismail. Actually, don't know if I pronounced his name. I think so. Probably um, from uh, Vlambeer. I think it's a really good example of someone who's ABC in it all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's just it's 
So it's like so, all, all, always be championing yourself. So is that camp, campaigning? Yeah, campaigning. Campaigning. Okay. Uh, talking about what you're doing. Talking to other people. Meeting new developers. Meeting journalists. Going to festivals. That's not necessarily a financial uh, possibility for a lot of people, mm-hmm. but there's ways to do it for no money as well. You know, like getting into online communities, getting into game jams, participating in like virtual game jams or uh, game jams in a specific location. Uh, networking, making friends. Really, when it comes down to it, I, you know, to answer your question, that's part of it. But the other thing is, um, the more that the more people you know, and the more contacts you have, and the more relationships you have, uh, the more likely you are to succeed. And relationships are actually critical, especially relationships with platform holders. You know, like Apple and uh, Google and uh, Valve or anybody that's like selling your game on their store, uh, having real relationships with them is really, really important. Having relationships with other developers is incredibly important. So, you know, places like GDC and, uh, and PAX and other conventions are great for meeting people. <clears throat> really, if you have lots of positive non-manipulative relationships with people doing the same thing you are, um, you're much more likely to. I don't know what question is. is so is, 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 is it something that you've, you started doing or that you felt like you, since you were in the beginning beforehand, you know, you started early before there was a big saturation of the market. Now, do you feel like you still need to do a lot of campaigning or do you just. Oh, definitely. Yeah. 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 And we barely did any for like the first seven or eight years of our business. Mm-hmm. Uh, mainly because we got in the habit of not really having to do it because we did a lot of games for hire mm-hmm. where you just get paid uh, yeah. a single amount and you make the game and it's, you know, how well the game does kind of incidental. Right. <laughs> and someone else is marketing if they want to. Right. And we didn't uh, own the game. So okay. So as far as Dino Run went, it marketed itself pretty well because it was multiplayer and it had a community. And free online. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So... These days, though, you know, if your game isn't the most amazing thing that's ever been released and you want people to know about it and buy it, you need some sort of hook. And uh, the hook could be something in the game or it could just be some way that you talk about it. Um, yeah. You know, some of the best advice is just always always talk about your game no matter what you're doing. Okay. Um, there's ways to do that without sounding like an egomaniac. You know, people kind of expect developers to talk about their game anyway, mm-hmm. like when they're on social media or wherever they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I, at a I, restaurant, I, you just start randomly talking to <laughs> the and, server or uh, something. Like yeah. yeah, you just never know yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I feel it's that's something that I've I've had to kind of get used to too. Just always talking about what mm-hmm. I'm doing. I've written like ten books by the web, but like it felt like the last couple of books were just like I didn't. No one knew about them until after I was done. Mm-hmm. Write them. I was like, oh, well, I should have probably told right. people I was writing a book, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> instead of, instead yeah. of being a fool and just working on the book, you know, just uh, right, get them hyped and psyched. Now, I mean, wasn't in the kind of the publisher's job to also market them a bit, or no? I don't know. Like, I, I don't want to like throw publishers underneath the bus, but because uh, <laughs> 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 they're all great people, but. Um, yeah, so it's, it's part of the job, but also I think it's uh, it's it's what's called um, I think authorship not portal not portal, but uh, it's just if you have enough followers, it doesn't really matter uh, what what you want to write because the publisher just wants to put a book out there. So if you have enough of a following, 
you know, you, so so by having those relationships with other developers and reporters and some of that, uh, you get you get the buzz for it. And so when you're ready, it's uh, built in, locked in. So it's it's pretty. A lot of people will look at the the successes, and unfortunately, this all, almost all the successes are statistical outliers. Um, when you look at you know how they got their success, some of them were just lucky. Some of them did incredible things. Um, then once you're there, it becomes so much easier to actually market your stuff after that. But getting there in the first place is is the really tough part. Mm. And the way the path we've had to basically forge is just uh, working with our fans and uh, community mm -hmm. of people that enjoy what we do. We've never had any like major press coverage um, for any of our games. Never had like a, like a review in a major magazine. Or a major like Wired or something like that. Or even, you know, any of the major video game blogs like Kotaku or Polygon. We have, we've had reviews. Not, and... not official reviews. People have mentioned what we're doing. I've never seen like an uh, an official review with like a score that would like show up on Metacritic or something like I that. I see. Yeah. I've never seen any of that. Now, for mobile games, it's actually very different. It seems to be, I don't know why this is, but it seems to be a lot easier to get coverage for mobile games in the major blogs and, mm -hmm. and uh, press. But as far as PC games, the competition is, well, the competition is fierce for both. But for PC games, generally you... Seems to be even even harder because there's so many people doing really really interesting stuff, mm -hmm. and you know that's kind of good. The competition is good; it forces people to to make better and better games. Um, mm -hmm. It's not necessarily good for someone with stars in their eyes right. that thinks they're going to be the next Lambier or uh, Cappy or something like that, um, because those people get looked up to and they think they can replicate their success by kind of doing the same thing they did. But usually the things that those people did, they only worked at that time. And, you know, next year, the way you get coverage or get interest is going to be totally different. Okay. Um, so it's constantly changing. The rules are always changing. So. Okay. And there's, there's no way to actually learn, you know, learn those rules without actually doing game <laughs> development, right? So. Exactly. Yeah. You really need a lot of experience <clears throat> in your belt. Um, really, like, most, I'd have to say... Most people, they probably just expect success just for making a really good game. But a um, popular saying is that that's the baseline for getting any sort of coverage is making a really good game. And then after you've made a really good game, if you're going to get noticed and if you're going to make sales, you have to do a lot more work after that. Right. If you don't even have a good game to start with, you might as well just give up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh man! So, in terms of uh, technology, in terms of programming, what do you guys use right now? Because you know, Flash is, you know, not as popular as it was once before. So. Yeah, um, we're using. Uh, well, we have legacy games to support, like Dino Run stuff like that. That's all Flash. But for new games, we're using Hacks. Um, you familiar with Hacks at all? I am not familiar with Hacks. It's uh, like a meta language that compiles uh, natively into other languages. H-A-X-E. Um, it's all open source. Uh, there's no, there's a foundation that uh, that created it, but they don't necessarily own it. You don't have to pay anybody anything to use it. Okay. There's a huge uh, online community of people that are constantly improving it. Um, it's really awesome, actually, and a lot of people really don't know much about it. It's interesting, but you know, it's uh, I love it personally. Um, it was kind of a no-brainer transition 
especially for a lot of people that were Flash developers, because the syntax is extremely similar to Flash. Um, and it more so by a, a framework that lays on top of it called OpenFL. Um, it kind of mimics the Flash API. So, and it's really, it's not necessarily for people that used to do Flash. Anybody can use it. But you can export to HTML5 or Mac, Windows, Linux, uh, Android, iOS, and then a bunch of other, uh, like, not lesser known, but more obscure platforms as well. Um, so yeah, that it's, is, it's not a platform, it's not platform, just, platform for just for games, games right? right? Well, you can do anything in it, yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's probably most well known for, for games, but you could create any app in it that you want to. You can create web pages in it, uh, but it's not exactly super efficient because there's a lot of like underlying frameworks and you don't necessarily want to load a meg or two of frameworks to go to a website. But with an app or a game, it's not a big deal. So, so Rich. Yes. Any, any technology uh, changes since... I guess since the Photoshop, since you zoom in, zoom out in Photoshop, anything. Uh, I don't no. want to say that you just use Photoshop. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. Just no. Photoshop keeps getting updated, and I could zoom in a little farther. <laughs> yeah. There's pixels within pixels, guys. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right now, you can edit the pixels of the pixels. like macro pixels. <laughs> We've gone Retina. Right. Well, yeah, the one nice thing about Retina we found is that before our games didn't scale well at all. And uh, when we did scale them up for full screen, we had to scale them in increments of like Multiples, their original yeah. size. Yeah. Um, else everything would look distorted. But now since the onset of Retina, we can just scale it to whatever size we want. Oh, oh, nice. It doesn't have to be a whole number, you know, and then it'll look good pretty much at any scale. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It's a nice side effect of Retina and pixel graphics. Right, you know how you look at a pixely game or something, and the and a typeface will have it'll just look messed up. <laughs> like, so each each little no line more. is not quite right. Yeah, it fixes yeah, that. Yeah, because computers always try to uh, anti-alias it, and try to fudge it a little bit and make it smoother. And right, right, sad as well. Yeah, ugly. <laughs> <laughs> computers doing you a favor, like oh, it's ugly, like oh. <laughs> Sorry, Rich. Oh man, <laughs> it's all good now. <laughs> cool. So um, I do want to talk about uh, also uh, crowdsourcing for the apps because I know you guys have tried uh, Kickstarters because that's one of the things like mm-hmm. that that kind of leads itself to campaigning. Always be campaigning, right. which mm-hmm. is something I learned just a few minutes ago, uh, <laughs> and, and that you need to know in game development. So it's it helps you know you know using. Uh, Kickstarter. So, how was how was your experience with Kickstarter, and uh, was it successful attempts or? Yeah, we had a, a successful attempt a long time ago uh, for Glorkium Warrior, uh, which it never became unsuccessful, but it, it kind of succumbed to a typical not Kickstarter problem, a crowdfunding problem of uh, kind of not exactly knowing what we were going to build when we were just figuring out how much money we were going to ask for. And of yeah. course, as with most development projects, uh, the scope increases after you start. We weren't really that far along in the game before we kickstarted it. So we realized we needed like 10 times more money than we actually asked for. Yeah. So, And then we rebuilt the game like three times. And we eventually did deliver it, but four years after we said we would. But it, it's funny that 
nobody actually complained, which is super weird. Yeah. Um, there were people that like would ask, when's the game coming? But, you know, a lot of Kickstarter campaigns, if you go, the ones that are taking really, really long time to come out, most of their comments were like, oh, you scammed us. You know, uh, this game's never going to come out. Why did they give you money? Blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, we somehow dodged that. I don't know exactly why. I think it's because um, ours was really early on. It was like in 2010 or 2011 before it really blew up, before Kickstarter blew up, or crowdfunding in general. Right. It was only $10,000 we raised. Yeah. yeah. And also, we were really forthcoming with people. Uh, anybody, anybody that asked a question, we always answered them. Uh, um, and then uh, we let people know. It was constant apologies for like four years <laughs> until yeah, we released it. Excuses. But that goes a long way. Um, yeah. And you know, I think now now that crowdfunding campaigns are much bigger, and mm-hmm. we had maybe like two hundred backers or something. Mm-hmm. Your typical success now could have like five thousand backers or ten thousand. Right. Yeah. The, that, Mich- the yeah the Mystery Science Theater reboot. Mm-hmm. had like uh, i don't think 14 million dollars at least or something like that or something like that mm-hmm. but you could tell that it was a, a 30-day uh production you know Ooh, that they, oh, every yeah. day they're like doing totally. something and, and <laughs> that's, that's true too yeah. yeah yeah and so it's a different world now if you want to totally, do uh, totally yeah and i think what happens sometimes if it's if it starts to get if it starts to take a lot longer than people uh, thought it would or then the creators thought it would you start seeing some uh, concerned comments and then you start seeing some nasty comments yeah. and then since there's so many since there's so many people uh, i think a lot of times the creators get and i'm not going to say scared but they see all the nasty comments and they don't really know how to respond because it's overwhelming to see all that negativity right. towards you and then that creates a negative feedback loop where the um, creators don't actually respond to anything Mm-hmm. Because they don't want to like pipe up and respond to a positive comment and ignore the negative comment. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times you'll in the comments you'll see positive and negative, but no response from the creators whatsoever. Because I think they're really overwhelmed, mm-hmm. probably mainly by the negative ones. Um, right. And so uh, to go to step back a bit, our first crowdfunding experience was positive and negative. Positive in that you know it was successful, and we actually did ship a game um, from it. The next one, we were asking for a lot more money. That was for like a Dino Run sequel. Um, but we didn't make that amount of money. Um, and I think we made a little more than half of what we were asking for. Um, and then after that, we started thinking a lot, like how can, how can we improve the process? Uh, not, not improve Kickstarter. I don't think you can really do that. Like uh, At the time, when we launched our, our kind of do-it-yourself crowdfunding campaign for uh, Dino Run uh, last year, maybe about six months, five or six months ago, mm-hmm. um, we were definitely feeling like a lot more anti-traditional crowdfunding. Um, but these days, uh, I would say, you know, Kickstarter does Kickstarter and Indiegogo, Kickstarter in particular, because they're kind of like the the behemoth of this whole scene. Um, I think they do what they do really, really well. I don't think anybody's going to do what they do better. I think a lot of the problems come from the misunderstanding of what Kickstarter is used for or what, yeah. like, what its purpose is. Um, and, and, and what is that? I just want to just define it. I mean, uh, the bottom line is, is to raise a bunch of money for something you're interested in. Like, a lot of people think that Kickstarter is there to <coughs> enforce a bunch of rules after it's been successful. 
Um, they provide you with the means to communicate with people. But the thing that we were we were trying to address with our like roll your own campaign was the, the lack of transparency that creators generally get into with their backers after they get funded right. or even yeah. during the campaigns. Yeah, like like I'm a big fan of Kickstarter. I used to be like, I've like I think I've backed sixty projects and oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, and it's like hey, that's a cool idea. And like I'm kind of like I kind of like don't do that as much as I do now because uh, I don't know. It's kinda crazy. <laughs> but uh, but like like but I don't uh, even then I, I I like I tell people just if you like the idea but you don't want more junk in your house <laughs> like like, yeah. like I need more stuff in my house. Uh, just back it for a dollar and just get status updates because oh, of like, right. Because yeah. even, even that is pretty cool to see how a project comes together. Totally. If you're a management nerd, like you know, like I'm, you know, sometimes. But yeah. uh, but uh, but yeah. But even then, like even if I back something, I, you know, I'm I'm pretty much like placing a bet and saying, I would love to see this happen. But if not, I'm okay seeing this. You know, twenty bucks or whatever, not right. fifty bucks, whatever, not show up and materialize on my my doorstep. And right. and what really? So it's like I I appreciate your idea. Thanks for sharing sharing with us you know but if it doesn't happen you know just make sure it's a authentic attempt at making it happen and <laughs> right. so and uh you know when things happen you know people get life happens and some of that so yeah there's, there's only one thing where i'm upset where it didn't happen but mostly but other than that i mean in terms of the success rate for kickstarter having is it's pretty pretty good yeah so but i can totally understand but there's other projects that they don't materialize, you know, or um, I call it like the Google, uh, the Kickstarter wave. Sometimes I get, I get from, I get packages in the mail from Kickstarter projects, all within the same week. But I, but I, back them at different times of my life, you know. They all, but they all just kind of materialize at the same time. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> it's weird. But yeah, but yeah, I can totally see your point where like you know, but Kickstarter is about making things. A lot of people to make things that they would never do in a traditional. Yeah, uh, sense of like asking people from uh, asking investors for money. So when you say the anti-crowdfunding <laughs> uh, crowd, which is sort of like weird because like isn't anti-crowdfunding asking for big amounts of money from like Hasbro or something like that? I'm not sure. So, right. Yeah, I, I, I think I should clarify and say it was like kind of anti-crowdfunding culture, okay. and the culture was uh, at the time it was get a bunch of money, be silent for two years, and then do or do not produce something after those two years. And uh, so we were, the, the whole idea with the Dineron thing was we had like a roadmap where it had a bunch of milestones and what we our exact plan. And then we broke each milestone down into tasks. Anyone that's ever used project management software, you know, they have like to-do lists and they check them off. We were trying to make that visible to everybody. Like here are our tasks. Here's how long we think it's going to take to do each task. And then when we do the task, we record how long it actually took so people get an idea of like how good our estimations were um and then uh you know if things go wonky there's some sort of quantifiable data as to why they didn't go why we thought they would go that way um but you know we've we've still been working on them since Dynamon came out and we still have kind of like uh revelations and pivot points as to how it should all work um and the uh the idea now is that it really it really goes back to like the ABC principle. Um, so when you have an idea for something, there's this gap between oh I have an idea and I'm going to get on Kickstarter for it. Like what do you do between idea and Kickstarter? Because you need to get a lot of stuff together these days to have a successful Kickstarter campaign. 
it's, you know, when we did Glorky and Warrior, we literally just had an idea. We had like three, two or three concept art, like pieces of concept art, uh, a cool idea, a, like kind of a, a, an indie famous uh, comic book artist. And that's all it really took. But these days, if you go on Kickstarter and you just explain your idea and you have a few pieces of concept art, you know, you're going to get played. <laughs> 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 like, you know, you got to really prove that you know what you're doing. Um, yeah. So the the way our, you could call them tools or whatever, the tools we've been working on are now to address that, how do you campaign before and after Kickstarter or before and after like a major money infusion? Um, or like, uh, what do you do right before early access, Steam early access if you're making a game? Or like, so you have some music, what do you do between having a, you know, a, cool, a few cool tracks and a completed album? Um, and so, yeah, that's that's kind of what we're trying to address now is is those major gaps between those, um, to kind of encourage people, give them some, give them some ways to keep people informed and uh, educated, and just keep every uh, the the lines of communication clear between developer and creator. I mean, between uh, creator and uh, the public, anyone who's interested in what you're doing, basically. Because I don't think just like a, a comment thread is really good enough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so we're saying like you're working on a new crowd uh, sourcing or funding system. Is that right? Is it so that uh, uh, I wouldn't even say we're working on a new crowdfunding system now, um, <laughs> because that implies that we're actually trying to like compete uh, with Kickstarter and Indiegogo and uh, other and Patreon. Okay. Stuff like that. I think, unless we had tons of money and muscle behind us, I think that's kind of like a losing bet. Yeah. Um, I think these days we're, you know, a really good example is Backer Kit. Um, Backer Kit, you know, they just kind of like, uh, what's the best word? What's the best word to describe what they do? They kind of add on to your Kickstarter experience. They make it better, right? Um, so like. Yeah, for the developer and. The yeah, uh, I think that's what we're focusing on now is how to make the Kickstarter experience more valuable for the developer, for the creator, and for the people that are going to back it. And how do we add that extra layer of transparency or accountability or communication or you know any of those things that are pretty necessary when a bunch of people give you money? Oh, so, so Becker Kit just sounds, it just adds more value to your Kickstarter campaigns or like. It's like a, it's like the when you get to the checkout line, it's like a bunch of extra things you can buy. <laughs> That's not all they do, but that was my, my major experience with it. I thought it was pretty cool, like, you know, when something Hyperlight Drifter just released and you know, you get this link that says, Hey, it's time for you to collect that thing that you uh, you contributed to so mm-hmm. long ago and then you have this whole experience of like, Oh, I'm actually a hardcore fan and I wanna order this, that and the other thing. Right. Supplement my my experience. Okay, they yeah. show it to you as you're checking yeah. out. All these <laughs> other like things you didn't know existed. Yeah. yeah. Right, because they added a lot. It seems like they added a lot <coughs> they uh, kicked it off. Or mm-hmm. I just wasn't aware of those things. Or maybe now, like, I only had $10 when I supported it. And now, three right. years later, when it's out, I have $100 to spend on a project. Right. So Try to upsell me on that stuff. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, it was a cool idea. And it, it just kind of supplements the... And, you know, adds to adds value to the whole experience. So that's that's where we're at now with it. We're trying to add value 
and um, and just fill the gaps. Fill the gaps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We see there's there's a void here where something there's help is needed, and how can we our tools facilitate? Right. Okay. So so basically, you have like a, a so I'm not sure. Would you have a name for? Her? Uh, well, the, the, the tent, like the unofficial company name is E70. Um, E70. and that's actually, we, I think we came upon that for a couple of reasons. One originally, I think it was just like a placeholder name that we just got used to. It's a, it's a European highway. I mean, it's also a Nokia phone and like a, <laughs> like, like a model. Like yeah. Like a car model. Is that your favorite phone? Your favorite phone? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Uh, nope. I learned that after the fact. Um, but the, the the but it's basically a set of tools. It's like five or six tools we have right now. Um, one is for just like taking money and, and uh, taking some sort of action after that transaction is successful. One is for keeping track of rewards. One is for uh, keeping track of people that have given you money. One is for organizing your basically your business plan and your uh, milestones and all the tasks of each milestone. Uh, one is for managing kind of like your street team, the people that are interested but not necessarily giving you money, kind of mobilizing the people that are going to help promote you. Okay. Um, yeah, but we're always we're always improving them, and eventually, I think we're going to make them public, probably pretty soon. But we've been saying that for a while. <laughs> uh, oh, do you have, do you have a website for it? Or uh, no, there is no website for them just yet. There's a dashboard that people could actually use to start new projects. It actually works, <laughs> um, but we're just being really slow and steady and cautious with it. Yeah, we've been at it for about two and a half years. Yeah, figuring out <laughs> what exactly, what are the pain points? How yeah. can it, it started? The impetus for it was the, the failed uh, second Kickstarter campaign. Right, Dino Run Two. So, so, so lessons learned. Like you didn't feel like the kick, that that Kickstarter campaign that you didn't feel like it was uh, enough for you to like. It was that lesson you learned. Just like say, instead of having a big massive buildup for a campaign that you Kickstarter, yet like this massive undertaking to do it, you'd say, oh, well, let's, instead of just doing this massive buildup and getting all this money all at once, what if we just set milestones? Tell people w- what they are, and if you reach a certain milestone in terms of financial. Right. It will will make this much of the game, and if we yeah. get this far, we'll, we'll we'll flush it out some more. And so, yeah, so. that's how Dino Run work, but that won't necessarily work for every idea. Like that's it's pretty risky for a really really big game. Yeah. You know, imagine yeah. a huge game. It's like okay, if we raise fifty thousand dollars, we're going to make ten percent of this game, and then ten percent of it gets made because they don't make more than fifty thousand dollars. And but the money's already been taken, the money's been spent. People can't get their money back. And you have ten percent of a really awesome game. Um, for some people, for a lot of people, like all you really need is ten or twenty percent of a game, and then there are avenues to take. Like after uh, you get that, you know, you're more likely to find a publisher or have a Kickstarter success mm-hmm. or, with a playable demo of some yeah, sort. Um, yeah. So I think, but one of the things we realized was that uh, for the Dino Run campaign and for a lot of Kickstarter campaigns, they just appear out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I mean, it's kind of exciting to, to hear about a Kickstarter campaign out of nowhere for something you didn't know you wanted. Um, but we probably should have been building momentum for that campaign six months before it actually started. Mm-hmm. Um, Kickstarter should have been like the middle step, not the first step. Mm-hmm. Um, so had we been campaigning for Dino Run 2 six months beforehand, 
either it might be like raising small amounts of money and making a prototype and building like a, a big list of people that were going to support it or at least interested in it. Not necessarily even giving us money, just people that were on board for the experience. Um, I think it would have had more impact uh, mm-hmm. the actual campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, uh, you know, although in retrospect, personally, I was a real, a, a tiny, I was super depressed like halfway through the campaign, but then by the time it was over, I was incredibly because um, I think like it wasn't the right project for us at the time. Okay. I don't, that's just my personal opinion. That's not the opinion of everybody that was involved. Um, <laughs> I would like to see the game made, um, but under the circumstances, it, and it didn't, in retrospect, it didn't seem like the right thing to do at that time. Okay. Um, and if it ever happens again, it will happen under very different circumstances. So. Okay. Is that revenge call here? Revenge? Yeah, it'll happen underneath him. Revenge circumstances. <laughs> like revenge. <laughs> no, I think of it as revenge. Hopefully it's, it's not like some sort of subconscious attempt at revenge. <laughs> Who would the revenge be against? <laughs> I'll get you Kickstarter this time. Uh, no, no, no. no, no, no. We don't harbor any ill will. No. Any no, no. no it's, uh, I think that, you know, there probably was a point. I think a lot of people uh, like they get upset at Kickstarter when Kickstarter kind of bites them in the ass, but it's really the way they used Kickstarter that bites them in the ass, not Kickstarter itself. Like you can't, you know, you can't, I remember like not naming names, but really big projects that um, actually made their, like almost, can't remember if it even made its amount, but somebody blaming Kickstarter for being all or nothing because it made them tell a bunch of, uh, half truths made about them, yeah. what they were going to put in the game, and they were like trying to make their deadlines, so they started promising a bunch of things they couldn't actually deliver, which is classic. Yeah, um, I think everybody we know, including ourselves, that's ever done a major crowdfunding campaign, starts promising things they can't actually deliver on because they right. just want to make that goal, and they have this attitude that if I make that goal, everything will be okay. <coughs> And right. I'll, be, I'll just figure it out. But that's that state of mind that of basically desperation. Yeah. Like uh, most people we know that have run uh, major all or nothing crowdfunding campaigns definitely felt desperate right in the middle of it and towards the end. And for the few that like made their goals and then like way over, they probably didn't feel that. There's probably just like, you know, euphoria the whole way. <laughs> uh-huh. Um but for the majority of them that did make their goals, they didn't necessarily like bust, you know, bust their goal by like 500%. Um, there's definitely that, that sense of desperation. Like I'll do anything to make this goal. And I don't really care what happens afterwards. I just need to make that goal because I put so much into this campaign. I can't not make that goal. Right. 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 But, but what's actually worse, like what's much worse than not making your goal is, uh, having 5,000 angry strangers yeah. <laughs> asking you, where's that thing you promised? Right, and all the other things you promised at the end. <laughs> so I'm really glad that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Cool. I totally, I totally understand that. So what are you guys working on in the future? So you guys, uh, Game of Brothers 1.5, is that next? Is that? Yeah, that is the very next thing. We actually are going to... The date seems solid. I guess it could be tentative, but it seems solid. Like uh, 
April 21st, we're going to launch another kind of do-it-yourself uh, campaign. I wouldn't really call it a crowdfunding campaign because we are going to make GIMP Bros 1.5 no matter what happens. Um, but it's really just more like a, a promotional pre-order, uh, like limit. it's like a four-week campaign that we're doing before Steam Early Access. Um, so we have these theories about, uh, you know, marketing and how our tools can be used. And, you know, we're basically running all of our projects through these tools to, to see how these theories work out. Um, and so the current theory is that, you know, we should be, we should, we can have our own funding campaign before we go on a major platform um, to gather uh, like the hardcore fans and early adopters and get them on board and get them interested before we actually have like a major platform release. Um, like a Steam early access. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then also uh, anybody that's doing marketing can tell you the more like, quote-unquote events you have, the better. Mm -hmm. So we have like this kind of pre-launch and then early access, which isn't exactly a launch. It's like another pre-launch. Yeah. And then you get out of Steam early access and then you like do your launch proper. And then you do an update after that. That's another event. Mm -hmm. Anything that you can kind of justify popping on, popping onto like social media and mailing lists and saying, "Hey, this major thing just happened. Check it out." Because um, it, look, it looks really pathetic when it's like four months after you released your game and you just say, "Hey, remember this thing we did?" <laughs> Instead of just, "Hey, there's something new. This is like an event. You, here's a good reason for you to kind of check out what we did if you didn't before." Um, so we're definitely going to use these the same tools, these slightly improved tools um, for the Dynamite campaign to uh, to raise some money for Gamma Bros. And, and most importantly, we're going to kind of bake the roadmap into the actual game. Um, so like for the early access version at least, so that when you uh, play the game like on a title screen or something like that, you can actually see the progress we're making and you can, you know, there's more involvement that people can actually feel like their early contribution or their early access sale, the money actually went to like a tangible improvement in the game. Right. Instead of the typical scenario, which is in early access, we've seen is just like, you don't really know where your money's going. You don't actually know if the game is going to get finished. Um, you're just hoping it does. And there's no, there's no way of actually knowing that. So we're trying to, put in to let people know this is where your money's going, or at least these are the things that your money is accelerating um, within our progress. Cool. That sounds pretty awesome. And any other games on the horizon? <laughs> um, yeah, so Gamma Bros is one thing. We're still making updates to Dino Run um, because that campaign is ongoing. Um, it wasn't, it's not a limited time campaign. So as we meet milestones for that, we're making updates. And then we have, we're also working on a game with Imago's um, Softworks, like kind of like a spin-off game to their, to their game Starmazer. Starmazer had a, a successful Kickstarter campaign about a year ago, and then the game that Pixel Jam is working on with them is like a spin-off game to that. It's a pretty, kind of like a manic uh, horizontal shooter um, uh, with like some roguelike stuff. In, in space. In space. In space. <laughs> Um, and then, uh, and then there's a few games that we've been working on for quite a while that, 
are kind of in limbo, I would guess. Um, there's one like called Wrath of Pegasus that. Yes, uh, <laughs> yes. I love Have you. Seen yeah, some. you. Uh, we actually had this naming uh, email thread. Oh, yeah, you you right. asked, you're right. You and everything. Yeah, so I gave you a whole bunch of list of names. I think you guys is stuck with Wrath of Pegasus. Is that? Did you name that game, Chris? No, I don't think so. Oh, oh, okay. No, I think I think you guys like I think we're going to name it Wrath of Pegasus. And I gave you like a list of twenty names or something, or ten names, or whatever. You're like, yeah, we're sticking with Wrath of Pegasus. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate your your ideas. Oh, no, no, it's <laughs> fun. You know, it gets worked on on and off. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like in the queue. You know, we're, we're a small company, and it's not a good idea to work on five things at once. Oh well, that's how it goes sometimes. <laughs> So, so it does go that way sometimes. Yeah. And then, you know, we have another album of kind of like Pixel Jam inspired music that right. I assume Pixel Jam is going to. Um, and then there's another project with uh, Pixel Jam inspired music. That sounds like people are inspired by Pixel Jam and they're making music. <laughs> uh, no, but it's not music from games. It's just music by Pixel Jam people and our friends. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, there's a couple other things on the sidelines. Uh, but really, I think for me personally, the main focus uh, are these tools we're working on. Mm. And just trying to figure out exactly what they are and how we're going to explain them to people. Because yeah. before it was, you know, we're going we're gonna to compete with people that you really shouldn't compete with. Right, we'll be the alternative to, to <laughs> and that, established major brands. Yeah, it's just it's <laughs> not a good idea. <laughs> right. right, we haven't created our own category, um, really. And so, yeah, at that point. yeah, I think we're really close to figuring out why they're useful and um, and how people can use them. So. Okay, awesome. That's the thing I'm probably most excited about right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for taking time of your day uh, to speak with yep. me. Yeah, thank and, you. No uh, so where can people find you on the internets? Pixeljam.com. P-I-X-E-L-J-A-M. Yeah. Right, and at Pixeljam Games for Twitter. P-I-X-E-L-J-A-M. G-A-M-E-S. Why did the screen just go black? It does oh, okay. <laughs> um, and what else? We have a Pixeljam Facebook. And yeah. We have a Doomsurf. At Doomsurf is Twitter for Dino Run. And uh, we're going to get one going for Gamma Bros at Gamma Bros 1 5. Yeah, that's actually there as well. Yeah, I I emailed or I I direct messaged the, uh, no, I just tweeted at because I couldn't direct message the person that owns at Gamma Bros who is using like the Minecraft skins of Gamma Bros and like tweeted like 10 or so tweets in 2013 and left it alone. Are you threatening them? Not yet. So far, it's been friendly. <laughs> it's like, hey, you mind if we use this? Because we're bring- Gamma Bros is coming back. Oh, like, <laughs> I didn't hear anything. Right. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna send them after you. Oh, well. yeah. We're gonna send our goons. These bros, them. they're gonna commit, pay you a visit <laughs> <laughs> in their spaceships. Yeah, and they just are Italian. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, not at all. <laughs> no Italian. Cool. Well, well, again, thanks for being here, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. I hope. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Good talking with you.